It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. The people of Georgia are voting as we speak. Has any local election ever gotten this much attention? I'm not even sure we'll know the results tonight for the same reason we didn't know the results of the presidential election on November 3rd because you've got this huge uh, volume of mail-in ballots uh, that may not be fully counted, uh, you know, and if the races are close. And it's very hard in special elections to f- predict how close or not close. It all depends on turnout. It's hard to poll. Uh, so I'll have more to say about this in a few moments, and we'll come back and talk more about it tomorrow on the podcast. Meanwhile, this caught my eye. Uh, one of the new members of Congress, Lauren Boebert, she's a Republican of Colorado. She has done a digital ad that's gone kind of viral uh, she owns a gun-themed restaurant in Rifle, Colorado. I did not know. I confess. There was a town called Rifle, Colorado. Uh, she put this out over the weekend, uh, and it was a kind of response to an effort by some Democrats, which is not expected to succeed, to ban members of Congress from carrying guns on the grounds of the Capitol. Uh, and in this ad, she says, she's this gun-toting congresswoman, she says, even though I now work in one of the most liberal cities in America, I refuse to give up my rights, especially my Second Amendment rights. I will carry my firearm in D.C. and in Congress. Um, the ad begins with uh, Lauren Boebert strapping a Glock to her hip before embarking on a walk through Capitol Hill and through federal, across federal buildings and so forth. Um, But it turns out that's not really a gun in the ad. Spokesman for Boebert said she was not carrying the gun throughout the video. Despite the opening scene, it's like, here, I've got this Glock, but it's not a Glock. So what is the point? It's deception. Um, And the reality is that uh, in the real world, uh, the D.C. police chief says uh, the department will be in contact with the new freshman congresswoman because she needs to get a concealed carry permit. Uh, if she's going to walk around D.C., it doesn't matter where, not just Capitol, anywhere in the District of Columbia, and D.C. doesn't recognize permits from other states. So if she applies for the permit and she gets it, then she can have her Glock, but in the end, it's a faux Glock. All right, let's get down to business here with story number one. Well, what we're dealing here with today, not just in terms of the uh, two Senate runoffs in Georgia, but in the entire political universe and the run-up to tomorrow's kabuki theater. And I I don't have any other way to describe it other than a kabuki dance because um, there's going to be a huge saturation coverage of certain Republicans in the House and the Senate objecting to the Electoral College results and um, demanding that the Joe Biden not be recognized as the president-elect. There'll be a heated debate in both chambers. And in the end, nothing will change. Nothing will change. More on that in a moment. Um, But I think the thing to focus on right now and what a lot of the stories are focusing on is the way in which President Trump, who is obviously behind these efforts, uh, in the wake of that damaging phone call to Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, which was reported by the Washington Post, which obtained the hour-long audio, which posted it online, and which you see the president, um, let's just say, pressuring Uh, the top election official in the state of Georgia, to just find 11,780 votes so that he can have a win there. Um, The impact on the Republican Party and how this has divided the Republican Party, that, I think, is today's story. So here's the Washington Post take. 
uh, follow-up piece, President Trump is effectively sabotaging the Republican Party on his way out of office, obsessed with overturning his election loss and nursing pangs of betrayal from allies whom he had expected to bend the instruments of democracy to his will. That's a straight news story. That's the lead. Pangs of betrayal, bend democracy to his will. Trump has created a divide in his party. This bunch is, is indisputably true. As fundamental and impassioned as any during his four years as president. In fact, I think when we look back on Trump's term, this will be the top item. His leaving of the office will be more remembered than the impeachment, more remembered than the wall, more remembered than Charlottesville, more remembered than, than any of the successes he's had. It was because it is the most unprecedented thing uh, that he has done. Uh, forcing lawmakers, as the Post story says, to choose between certifying the results of an election decided by their constituents or appeasing the president in an all-but-certain-to-fail crusade to keep him in power by subverting the vote. And it quotes some of the Republican members of Congress who are not going along with this effort by Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and, and others. Liz Cheney, for example, she's the number three House Republican. Uh, she called the uh, phone call, the president calling Brad Raffensperger, deeply troubling, urged Americans to listen to the hour-long conversation. Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, you know, one of the key states where the um, results are being argued over, although in my mind, after several lawsuits, after recounts, after investigations, Biden won that state by 150,000. Toomey condemned this as a new low in this whole futile and sorry episode. Even one of the president's most loyal defenders in the Senate, Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, said it was not a helpful call. She says everybody knows that. So the Post says the president's trying to mobilize a show of strength that could intimidate lawyers who certify the results of the Electoral College. Um, there's going to be big mass protests here in Washington tomorrow. He is planning to speak to the crowd on the ellipse around midday according to two officials familiar with the planning. Uh, D.C. officials are calling out the National Guard. So this is going to be a full-blown media, political, and mass protest spectacle, with the only caveat is, it, in the end, it's not going to change anything. Now, could it change the political debate? Could it change the next four years? Could it change Donald Trump's status as the former president who may want to run again? It could change all of those things. But what it's not going to change is what happens on January 20th. Uh, now, getting to the point about the split in the GOP, uh, the Post points out, this is a nice kind of roundup, uh, that Trump uh, ripped into Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell as having no fight. I mean, McConnell has carried so much water for Trump on so many issues for all four years of his term, but of course, because he's not backing him on this, um, he gets whacked. John Thune, he's the number two Republican in the Senate. Um, Trump says he's going to help recruit a primary challenger to Thune in South Dakota. And Thune had a kind of a glib response to the tweet saying, finally a tweet attacking me, what took so long? Trump has called, as you know, on Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, to resign. Now the Post says that Donald Trump is befuddled as to why more Republicans are not falling in line with him, according to unnamed advisors. Here's a quote from one of the unnamed advisors. He incontrovertibly thinks he won and thinks he won big, and the people around him don't disabuse him of that because they don't want to get crosswise. 
And because they told him he was going to win, and so they can have it both ways. It's not about his inability to move on, says his advisor. It's about his inability to even diagnose what happened. He won't yet conduct the autopsy, if you will. So Trump uh, spoke at a big rally in Georgia last night, talked about an hour and a half. He was there to support his Republican candidates, Kelly, uh, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. What was his first line in the speech? There's no way we lost Georgia. That was a rigged election. Now, we talked a little bit about the two candidates, but he, didn't come, he kept coming back to himself. He said he won uh, re-election in a landslide. He expects Mike Pence um, to change things when he fulfills his constitutional duty to preside over tomorrow's joint session of Congress, even though it's a ceremonial role, it's a procedural role. The vice president of the United States does not have the power, even if Pence wanted to, to overturn the results. And I just saw this little bit of breaking news. Senator Chuck Grassley, who is the president pro tem, so he's actually the, he's not the majority leader, obviously, but he is the, he has that title. He's in the line of succession. He has just announced or made it known that he, not Mike Pence, will be preside, will be the presiding officer uh, in the Senate during this, what is usually a formality, the certification of the Electoral College. So the, apparently, and that is kind of news in terms of Pence's political future, Pence, who um, has said he welcomes these challenges from Republicans who don't want to certify Biden's victory, and who president has been putting uh, lots of pressure on. But of course, you also might say that Pence could be screwing his own political future if he participates in this futile attempt to overturn the Electoral College results. He's going to duck out. He's not going to take, take that role. He's going to hand it over to 87-year-old Chuck Grassley. Fascinating. Here's what Trump said last night. I hope Mike Pence comes through for us. I have to tell you. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. Now, also yesterday, we saw the top uh, election official under the Secretary of State, Gabriel Sterling, hold a news conference in Atlanta and go through point by point all the things, all the claims about voting machines being moved and ballots being shredded and dead people voting one by one by one that President Trump claimed in that call and knocking them all down. Uh, Sterling said this is all easily, provably false, yet the president persists. We have claim after claim after claim with zero proof. Zero, says Sterling. Uh, and now we get into the impact on today's voting. Several Republicans in Georgia, again, this is the Post piece, say they're not really sure Trump wants Leffler or Purdue to win because if they do, it undermines his central complaint that the state's elections are rigged. In other words, how come they can win as Republicans, but he didn't win in the showdown with Joe Biden? Um, Trump advisors said he's especially bothered that a Democratic politician he has long disdained. This is former House Minority Leader and unsuccessful gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams is credited with orchestrating the ground game in Georgia that denied Donald Trump the victory in what you would think would be kind of an automatic win for a Republican, the red state or the previously red state of Georgia. And uh, also ticked off that Governor Kemp and Brad Raffensperger refused to try to rig the result in his favor. Um, now, according to one advisor who spoke to the president about this, uh, telling the Post, most everyone doesn't want to talk to him about it anymore. He's a broken record. Well, you can tell if you listen to the audio, I mean, obviously it's very repetitive. He goes on and on and on. And he did that at the rally as well. Now, this is, here's a little bit of news here that was misreported by the press. 
it is true that President Trump, through, through the White House operator, had tried to reach Raffensperger at least 18 times before they connected him. Because Raffensperger had publicly said he didn't particularly want to talk to the president, I thought, ah, you know, and I think the press said, well, of course, you know, he was ducking, he ducked one call after another call after another call, and finally he agreed to take the call. But according to Raffensperger's deputy, the calls were patched to interns in the press office who thought it was a prank and didn't realize it was actually the president on the line. I'm sorry. If the president calls through the White House 17 times, and even if you're an intern in the press office, and you blow that off, and he can't reach the Secretary of State, uh, I think I'd get rid of those interns. That's a, I mean, I could understand maybe one time thinking somebody's playing a joke. 17 calls in the White House, and you don't let anybody know? Seriously? And one other bit of news here for the Post story, McConnell has been privately telling Senate Republicans that this is their decision. This will be considered a vote of conscience, and each senator should vote the way he or she has to vote. In other words, McConnell's not going to pressure anybody. He's not going to lobby anybody. He's not going to whip anybody. New York Times story on the same subject refers to this as a stress test for democracy, uh, saying that there's a long tradition dating to 1800 when John Adams conceded the election to Thomas Jefferson, and that was a contested election, as you recall from your history books, of presidents conceding when they have lost. Um, the president has gone well beyond simply venting his grievances, says the Times, or creating a face-saving narrative to explain away a loss, as privately uh, his advisors were saying he would do in the days after November 3rd. Instead, he has stretched or crossed the boundaries of tradition, propriety, and perhaps the law to find any way he can to cling to office beyond his term that expires in two weeks. And the fact that he's going to fail, says the Times, doesn't mitigate the damage he is doing to democracy by undermining public faith in the electoral system. Trump and his staff have even floated the idea of delaying Biden's inauguration, even though it is set in stone by the Constitution. So that's not going to happen. Uh, and this goes through, you know, he talked to Mike Flynn about martial law. Um, military commanders are so alarmed that he might try to use the military to stay in the White House. I don't see that happening. That, as I mentioned on yesterday's podcast, the 10 living former defense secretaries, including the two who served Trump, Mattis and Esper, you know, released this op-ed in the Post uh, saying that the time has come to move on, that the election's over. Uh, the Times story also points out that the president has admired strongmen like Putin and Xi in China. Um, and also, it's kind of a recap of all the terrible things in the Times as the president has done, pressuring the Justice Department to prosecute his enemies, making expansive use of executive orders that at times the courts have said gone too far, impeached by the House over the perfect call to Ukraine that was in 2019. So, uh, obviously, this continues to dominate the news. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzbeater coming your way in just a moment. Story number two. The way in which the president turns on allies has always fascinated me, and I've gone through the long list. I mean, it could be John Bolton. It could be Omarosa. Michael Cohen, of course, turned on him. And on and on and on. The list is pretty lengthy. Now, the latest person to feel the presidential wrath is Tom Cotton. The Republican senator from Arkansas 
has been one of his most loyal, outspoken allies on Capitol Hill, defends him all the time on TV. But Cotton said on Sunday that he's not going along with the Ted Cruz, uh, let's not recognize the Electoral College results. What did the president do? He put out a tweet. Republicans have pluses and minuses. One thing is sure, they never forget, all caps, suggesting, implying, insinuating that he might try to engineer a primary challenge against Senator Cotton. Now, Cotton, there's a growing number of Republicans on the other side now. And here's the thing about this. When we talk about this, we use the shorthand. This is about tomorrow's Electoral College Challenge. Well, it's not going to succeed because the Democrats in the House are never going to go along with it. I don't think it's going to succeed. I think clearly it's not going to succeed in the Senate either, because while you do have, I guess it's now 12 senators, uh, including Cruz and Hawley, saying we are going to stop this and we're going to ask for an audit committee and all that stuff. You got at least 10 Republicans on the other side, people like Mitt Romney, people like Susan Collins, people like um, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, and now Tom Cotton saying... They'll not go along with this. Cotton says in a statement that, well, he's concerned about irregularities in the election. Um, This is up to the states and the courts to decide, not Congress. Here's his quote. Under the Constitution and federal law, Congress's power is limited to counting electoral votes submitted by the states. If Congress purported to overturn the results of the Electoral College, it would not only exceed that power, but also establish unwise Precedents. And that could take away the people's ability to choose a president. It also would put at risk the Electoral College, which Tom Cotton says gives small states like Arkansas a voice in presidential elections. He points out he campaigned vigorously for Trump. He wanted Trump to win, but he's not going along with this. The text of the Constitution is clear, says Tom Cotton. So I read you the, uh, the Trump text, excuse me, I read you the Trump tweet. And there was another tweet. Anyone who's not going along is now part of, according to POTUS, the Surrender Caucus. Here's his tweet. The Surrender Caucus within the Republican Party will go down in infamy as weak and ineffective guardians of our nation who are willing to accept a certification of fraudulent presidential numbers. Except it has not been proven. It has never been proven, and it probably will never be proven, that these were fraudulent presidential numbers. Oh, there are 70 judges, federal and state judges, who said the president and his campaign and the state of Texas, which filed that suit on his behalf, didn't produce sufficient evidence. So now it's the Surrender Caucus. So my point is, you know, if you're, even if you're Tom Cotton, even if you're Mitch McConnell, if you break with the president on something like this, then he goes after you. He, he, and then he tries to unseat you or engineers a primary challenge or, you know, calls on you to resign, as in the case of Georgia Governor Kemp. You're a rhino. And so what that means is Donald Trump defines the Republican Party as the Trump Party. If you're not with him, you're a traitor to the party. But there is another point of view, which is if you're a lifelong Republican who believes in smaller government, lower taxes, an aggressive foreign policy, uh, certain views on trade. In other words, if you stand for the things that Republicans have traditionally stood for, even if you support President Trump, but you break with him on something that's important to him, that you're a traitor. You're a Surrender Caucus member, and I find that fascinating. And the question is, how much hold will the president still have on the party once he's out of office? By the way, among his detractors now are Howard Stern. On his show, he said of the call to the Georgia Secretary of State, this is criminal. It's gangster. It's like Donald Corleone. 
Well, Stern, although, you know, he used to be pals with Trump, he used to go on his radio show, you know, he wanted Hillary in 2016, he's not been a fan of the president. Um, if you're talking on the phone to some guy in Georgia going, hey, what do you think about if we all said I won the election? What do you think about it? Think we can make that fly? I mean, that's what you're busy with, says Howard. Only 4.2 million people in the United States have received a dose of COVID-19 vaccine. It's like third world S going on. All right. Story number three, I want to continue with this theme about the divided Republican Party. Ross Douthat, anti-Trump, conservative columnist, New York Times, says he's now rooting for Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue to lose. He had been for them to win because he doesn't like the Democrats having a congressional supermajority. But he says now that the Democrats are going to be close in the Senate, obviously, no matter what. Even if, even if the Dems win both Georgia races, it's a tie that would have to be vote broken by Kamala Harris. Douthat says he wants the two Republicans in Georgia to lose because he doesn't want it to validate uh, the idea of slavishly endorsing everything Donald Trump says, his fantasy politics, his narrative of stolen victory. That kind of Trump forever future is what Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and others are making possible with their ambitious pandering, says Douthat. Hawley and Cruz both want to be Trump's heir apparent, as though he doesn't already have several in his family. But the deeper they go into the Trumpian dream politic, the more they build up the voter fraud myth, the more likely it is they'll just be stuck serving him another four years or longer. There needs to be some counter pressure. And that's why he says only a loss by these two Georgia Republicans would show that maybe, you know, going along with everything Donald Trump says, whether or not it's tethered to reality, is not such a good idea for the future of the Republican Party. And now that's the conservative view. In the Atlantic, we have the liberal view, uh, talking about the Cruz and Hawley and all of those going along, more than 100 Republican House members. This is sedition, plain and simple. No amount of play acting and rationalizing can change the fact that the majority of the Republican Party and its apologists are advocating for the overthrow of an American election and the continued rule of a sociopathic autocrat. Tell us how you really feel. All right, story number four, I mentioned the vaccines just briefly. So it's enormously frustrating to me uh, that the vaccine rollout, uh, and this is happening around the world, by the way, that is so slow uh, in the United States of America. The FDA, late yesterday, shot down this idea that uh, some uh, administration officials have been floating of trying to stretch the limited number of, of vaccines that have been made so far uh, by using uh, only half doses of the Moderna vaccine. FDA says that's premature and not rooted solidly in the available silence. So I guess there had been an argument that, you know, these half doses are pretty effective on their own, and then you could vaccinate twice as many people by stretching the amount that's available. Um, this seems to be being said about uh, the Moderna vaccine and not the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, it was the scientific leader, Slowey, of Operation Warp Speed who raised this idea. They are actually discussing this, but the FDA has now shouted it down. Um, we've been following the discussions and news reports. Uh, such changes should be researched in clinical trials before they're adopted. But I'll tell you, and this is just my view, well, of course, it seems to me that the most vulnerable populations should be vaccinated first. Of course, frontline healthcare workers. Of course, people in nursing homes. Maybe people over 75. Of course, that all makes sense. What's happening is because of red tape and bureaucracy, and some of this is the state's fault, and some of this is the lack of a clear federal program, clear mandate from Washington, 
is some of these doses are expiring and they're being thrown out. I just saw a story about a D.C. student who got one. He's not on the list. He's not in any of the vulnerable populations, but he got one because some pharmacy was about to throw it out. How can that be preferable? And so you almost wonder if you opened up the vaccines to anybody and all kinds of people could show up, on the one hand, you'd be reducing the chances that the most vulnerable population would be getting it. On the other hand, you'd be getting more doses into the arms of more Americans. So I almost wonder whether the system is counterproductive. I'm not saying we should change it. I'm just frustrated. I'm mad as hell about this. This is an absolute national emergency. It's being botched. I hope the pace picks up. Um, but you got to feel like we could do better than this. And story number five has to do with Julian Assange, of course, the founder of WikiLeaks. Uh, there has been an attempt. Remember, he's been indicted by the Trump Justice Department. It's been an attempt to extradite him from Britain. But a British judge yesterday rejected that extradition request from the U.S., saying, well, Assange has mental health problems. And if he did come back, this is clearly a political decision. If he did come back and have to uh, remain under harsh U.S. prison conditions, he's likely to kill himself. Now, I don't know how you reach that conclusion. Uh, Assange is 49. And uh, on the one hand, the judge's ruling did favor some of the Trump administration arguments uh, by saying that uh, this was not a request to bring him back. It wasn't a violation of free speech. It wasn't a political prosecution. In other words, it's a legitimate criminal prosecution. But however, uh, says this judge, um, we think this would really be bad for Julian and he would really be unhappy in the past and he might try to commit suicide. Um, now his lawyers are going to try to get him released from British custody. Australia has already said they would take Assange back. Uh, his legal team is very happy about this. We hope after the ruling, the United States will decide not to pursue the case further. Now, the question is, when the Biden administration takes over, uh, will the Biden Justice Department continue to pursue not just extradition, maybe that's been blocked for now, maybe permanently, I don't know if it can be appealed, um, but the case itself on the merits. Because, you know, Assange was charged with 17 counts of espionage and one of computer misuse over the WikiLeaks publication of those thousands of leaked military and diplomatic documents. Faces a maximum sentence of 175 years in prison. Now, his lawyers say, oh, he's acting as a journalist and is entitled to First Amendment protections. I'd like to see that tested in court. I've never regarded Julian Assange as a journalist. I don't think he takes the precautions that journalists do, even when they publish national security secrets, even though the objection of national security officials in any administration, I think he just tries to do damage to America. And he did break the law with what he did. Um, but there's no chance of him being held accountable as long as he's not able to return to the United States. So this is ultimately going to be a political question as well as a law enforcement question once Joe Biden takes office. Uh, thank you for listening. There is so much going on. I feel like I have so many plates spinning in the air. We try to get to as much of it as we can. Uh, the next couple of days are going to be crazy with the Georgia results, with tomorrow's Electoral College showdown on Capitol Hill. I hate to play the part of spoiler, but we know how it ends, but we don't know how the theatrics will play out. I hope you'll subscribe on, you can get this on Amazon Music now, on foxnewspodcast.com, Google Podcast, uh, Apple iTunes, and we'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Hold up. 
Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.